Upshot, Multi-World Disc Golf's podcast about the latest in the disc golf world. I'm the publisher, Charlie Eisenhood, and joining me, of course, is Josh Mansfield. We've got a national tour event starting tomorrow, the Delaware Disc Golf Challenge. Looking forward to that getting underway, and we will, of course, preview that and make our picks a little later in the show. First and foremost, Josh, what's going on? Nothing much, Charlie. I'm excited to be talking about Delaware coming up. I think, I mean, it's a grueling course, but always fun to watch. Iron Hill. Definitely one of the highest regarded, like deep wooded courses on the East Coast. No question about it. And therefore in the country. Um, and, uh, the, you know, this is the you know first Elite Series event on the East Coast. So off we go into this final stretch as we approach the end of the season with USDGC and the uh, Disc Golf Pro Tour Championship. Got a fun one for you today. We're going to open up some mail. We are, of course, going to preview Delaware. We've got a great Inside the Circle segment. And so let's just go ahead and dive right in. I am excited, by the way, because the fall is my favorite time of year to play disc golf. Because in the spring, I like to get out there, but it tends to be like windier and a little... I'm a little busier generally. And when we get to the fall, getting out for like twilight rounds, I mean, that's peak for me. I just love it. The colors are starting to change. You get these beautiful days. And really in the, you know, in, in our area in New York City, you go up to FDR and you play around. I mean, you can play rounds until November and it's still warm enough. So I'm I'm looking forward to this because this is the time of year that I play the most disc golf. And I just can't wait. I can't wait for the temperatures to cool off. It's blistering this week in New York, and I'm sure it's going to be very hot in Delaware. Uh, I haven't looked at the weather, but I would hate to have to play this course in scorching heat. Um, I think that would be excruciating. <laughs> Let me give you the forecast right now, just real quick. Friday, 93 degrees, uh, 67% humidity. It's not going to be pleasant. Uh, Saturday, it's going to cool off a little bit, 88, but humidity, 75% chance of showers Sunday, 85 humidity, 76%. So, you know, it's going to be summer in the mid Atlantic. I would choose to stay inside for weather like that. (laughs) (laughs) All right, well, let's get into some mail. We'll talk more about the Delaware disc golf challenge in a bit. Uh, lots of reactions already to our Tuesday show where we talked about courses on tour are there too are there too many events uh is is it getting a little too crowded on the calendar should there not be a stretch when you have four straight pro tour slash elite series events and four consecutive weekends and a lot of a lot of varying feedback i would say more common the most common response was shut up like have events and let players decide which I think is I think is a fair response. I don't know that I totally agree. I mean, obviously, given what I said on the show on Tuesday, you know, I think that there's a difference between offering tournaments on a week in week out basis, which I think makes sense, compared to, you know, incentivizing with the live coverage and the points and all of the other things that can make it difficult to kind of like give everybody a chance to feel like every event is important and you want to tune in. So, but I do want to read this from Alan Risley, who I think has a very nice take. Alan is a legendary San Diego organizer. He runs challenge at goat Hill. 
and he commented on our post on the website. Um, and here's what he had to say regarding, are there too many tournaments on tour? No, there aren't too many. Look at the PGA or LPGA tour. There are events nearly every weekend. Most of the players are adults. Most of them are. That's true. Uh, they can make their own decisions about whether they want or need to play or not. And some of them need to play the events in order to make a little prize money, sell a little merch, create some Insta content to drive their fundraiser sales. Eagle, Paul, Ricky Page, and a few others are not in this boat, but many others are. Disc Golf Pro Tour crews are tired. Better tired than unemployed, yes? DGPT already hires regional crews for some of the events. We had a regional crew for the live coverage of Goat Hill. If there are viewers and advertisers that are driving demand for event coverage, start hiring and training. Why do viewers watch some events and not others? Lots of reasons. Lots of people watch the preserve because it's in the summer when more people are on vacation and have free time. It had compelling competition last year. Very entertaining. The course is interesting and lends itself well to video coverage because it has open views, not tunnels of trees. And yes, viewers like watching players bomb since it's something that they can't do. I love playing golf in the woods, but some of the coverage, for example, Texas States, was tough to watch as I had no idea where the players were trying to throw. Which event should be on tour? The ones that meet the needs of players, fans, sponsors, DGBT. What are the reasons they belong? Sometimes that's added cash. Players. Sometimes it's a compelling scene to watch because of competition and the beauty of the course. Fans and sponsors. Sometimes it's because you need an event on a certain date for the players to earn money while they're driving to event X players. Sometimes it's because holding an event there gives the pro tour and players access to a fan base that they want to get interested in disc golf. Goat Hill is the one event that is within a one to two hour drive of the Los Angeles, San Diego, Orange County and Inland Empire markets. So those fans will watch events or buy discs and merch in the future, which supports everybody. The sport is growing phenomenally. Don't let our experience with the past keep us from realizing the opportunities that await us in the future. Very well said. Josh, what do you think? I don't have any problem with a significant number of A-tiers. I think this is something you you mentioned, Charlie. And and honestly, looking as an A-tier, if the Pro Tour could plan their structure first, right? If a year in advance, we had an idea of what the Pro Tour is going to look like calendar-wise, then if you were a regional organizer who's running an A-tier, do exactly what uh, what Alan here is talking about, right? If you know that players are going to be driving from Carolina to Delaware, vice versa, and there's three weeks in between events, pick one of those weekends and throw in a big A-tier. And then if you can get added cash or you can get a regional crew there, I think that's awesome. Um I, I still think I, I agree with you, Charlie, about to what extent, though, do we need to incentivize players to get there? To what extent should the Pro Tour be investing and in trying to make sure that every single weekend there is something available? That one I'm not quite as sold on, especially when you compare like the stretch that we were talking about. It's a little bit different. You know, he talks about Goat Hill, as you said, the tournament uh, or director of that event. It, putting Goat Hill in the middle of a couple of pretty big events, I don't think is a, a huge problem because we don't have quite that same level of incentivization. But when you look at the stretch that we were talking about and what prompted this question to begin with, the thought of even Eagle, the most conservative tour scheduling uh, individual for reasons of like health and uh, health and, pr- and prioritizing his well-being on co- on tour probably. <clears throat> 
he had felt compelled to play all four events. And I think when Eagle feels compelled to play all four events, everybody in the world feels compelled to play all four events in a row. And so that that's, I'm still not sold that the pro tour should be having events like that or that kind of packed schedule. I mean, it's an interesting thing because like, you know, it's true what Alan says about the PGA tour. There's events every damn weekend. That's true. And what you sometimes see is that the top players don't go to half of them. I mean, there there are players who basically just play the majors. Now, think think. I mean, obviously, golf is very different. If you're good enough, you don't have to grind. And in disc golf, maybe that's just sort of kind of starting to be true. But still, you know, you got to play a lot of events, I think. Uh, you know, unless you're one of like two or three people. And so, you know, I, I agree largely with the general sentiment here. I think I think there's like a, a it's a matter of degree. Are you willing to do you want to have events pretty much every weekend so people can play and earn money every weekend as a player? Yes, I think that's a good plan. And that's basically how it works now. Even on off weekends, there are tournaments logically located on the calendar that you can compete in, right? Remember back to the uh, Lone Star Classic that we, we talked about, right? They have this fat amount of added cash. It's on an off weekend. And a lot of players went to it because, well, it was sensibly located geographically and had a lot of added cash. That's great. I think that's what we want. I think we want to encourage sort of the off tour market to grow so that we can get to the point where players can you know decide if they want to go to these events and they, they sort of there's this natural growth process that happens and then eventually some of those top tier events get added to the tour you know like what's the future of the silver series right we've talked about this in the past i, I think we're going to start seeing that the silver series is not going to be for the top players so then if you don't have the Silver Series there for them, which many elite players have been going to this year, do you have to fill in those gaps with actual tour stops? I'm not sure. I think it's an interesting conversation to have. I'm really looking forward to seeing what you know the 2022 schedule looks like. I mean, I just saw somewhere on social media, Ricky Wysocki was like posted something maybe on Facebook. Uh referencing a golf tournament that was finishing its competition on Monday. And Ricky was like, hey, Jeff Spring, we should do this for the Pro Tour. And Jeff Spring said, we're looking at doing this in 2022, right? So you don't have a repeat of Ledgestone where you have to crown co-champions because of weather, right? So you have a, a, you have a built-in day to play a playoff or something or play the final round in the case of Ledgestone. Um, and I've also heard that a lot of events are going to be moving to four rounds. That we're going to have multiple courses at a lot of events. And we're going to have four round events instead of three, at least sometimes. So I think there's a lot of change on the horizon. And it, does it change people's minds at all if it's four round events versus three? Because now you got you got one less travel day, one less practice day, one more competitive round. It's an interesting concept. The one thing I do really want to point out from Alan's thing that I found very interesting and actually quite important to think about is access to markets. 
One of the things that I think disc golf struggles with a little bit is that it just misses entire areas of the United States. Like think about the tour as it's currently constituted. There's almost nothing in the South. Obviously, you get USDGC in South Carolina. I mean, it's basically North Carolina, you know, 30 minutes from Charlotte. Um, and you have the Pro Tour in North Carolina, the championship. But like, there's nothing in Georgia, uh, in, in most years anyway. Sometimes we get the IDGC. Uh, Florida is like just completely never on the tour. And I get it, right? Because it's kind of out of the way in the corner. Uh, you know, a lot of the eastern seaboard doesn't get much love either, right? Virginia, uh, an area that's been growing a lot in disc golf. And like, it's kind of close to the Carolinas and it's kind of close to Delaware, but like not that close. Um, so there's like a lot of disc golf that happens in the center of the United States and much less, you know, in and around the big cities of the West Coast, like Denver, L.A., uh, even San Francisco to some extent. I mean, I know we have OTB open, but that's not really that close to the Bay. Um, and I think that, you know, going forward, you're going to want to think about how do we access these major metros? You know, the closest tournament to the New York City, I, I guess, is this Delaware tournament. And then maybe you'd say MVP. It's not that far from MVP, but like, I'm not sure there's a course that's suitable enough in this area, but I think like long-term vision, you want to have a big tournament in the like largest metro area in the United States. So that's just, I find that a very interesting point from Alan. Two, two thoughts on this one. I want to bring in another email from uh, a reader, Johan. He says, in my opinion, Jonesboro is the only really good tournament in the first half of the disc golf pro tour. The second, the whole second half is excellent, which makes a total of seven premier events on the disc golf pro tour. Then why take away one of the really good ones? It would, it must be better to have a week off in the middle, play D glow and preserve. And then two weeks later, Ledgestone and Idlewild, maybe even a week of rest between the last two. I don't see the point of playing the four big tournaments back to back to back to back, and then playing two less than ideal tournaments directly after that. The only reason is geographical. I love woods golf, but Stafford and Delaware are not that good and they're not on elite level. Um, and then he mentions that he loves our idea of having USDGC in April, like Augusta, to kick off the season. It adds a little more prestige to the Pro Tour Championship, uh, and the and then just kind of the best way to kick off the season. I think that taking Johan's article or email, I think I agree with him, and I think that's where you kind of create the opportunity. Early season could be in the South. Uh, when you look at in terms of weather consideration of the which is a, a primary driver of the geographic and schedule champions cup at champions cup you put uh usdgc over there and you know with champions cup around the same time now you're looking at that issue of having two majors too close but with the middle stretch or i guess not the middle but the end of the early stretch is in texas I think starting in the South is complete logical sense where you start Florida or Alabama or Georgia and then move your way over to Texas uh, for the Texas swing. And I, I think and then moving over to the West Coast. So I, I think there's potential here. The problem is, is it's a little bit in conflict with what you're saying, Charlie, because I think that it, personally, I find LVC to be a little boring to watch. 
And I, but the problem is, is that it's in Las Vegas. It's in a big metropolitan area. And so the question is, does the market value of being in Las Vegas outweigh the fact that LVC feels like its importance on tour or just the level that this event holds is still as high? I mean, it's fascinating to think about. I mean, let's keep in mind, Champions Cup, the new PDGA major with the wacky format is happening next year and it's happening in Augusta. So, and and it's going to happen in April. So you have this tournament happening in the, you know, the Southeast in April. And where are we normally in April? We're in Texas, right? Or let's see. By April, we're at Jonesboro, right? Arkansas. So like, you can definitely drive over and do this major. But then the next event's like DDO. So you're like going all the way back to Kansas and then to the West Coast. It's not ideal. So I've been wondering for some time, are they going to change up this, the, the tour path because of this new major? And it does, I think, make a little bit more sort of overall sense to have some stuff happening in the South. But I don't know if you can stay in the South that long. You know, with with the Champions Cup, it depends on the scheduling, I guess, because normally the tour starts mid-February. So can you really do events in the Southeast, you know, in warm enough areas from like for like two months? I'm not sure about that. So it's something to consider, though, because, you know, I think having a tournament in Las Vegas is cool and fun, but you also can't wait too long because it gets too hot there. Um, you know, by by like April, May, I think it's up into the 90s in Las Vegas. So it, it very interesting. I mean, we kind of have done things a certain way for a long time. It is not necessarily the case that the, the tour needs to start in the sort of Arizona Vegas area um it could just as easily start in Florida and you're going to have pleasant weather so i'm curious to see how things shake out next year uh i definitely i i, I basically largely agree with johan by the way i think you don't when when i gave you the hypothetical of drop two of these events that was more just like a thought experiment not a suggestion to kill two of those events i think it would be best if we could keep all those events but not have them go back to back to back to back um especially because remember there's that europe stretch that normally people are skipping some of those midwest events because they're going to europe or they're in europe and so i think you know you got to make sure you schedule around that stuff appropriately so that people can kind of figure out a schedule that makes sense for them. Okay, here's another one. Um, some reactions to PDGA rule changes, which we talked about last week. It's from Nate. Um, he says, I helped run a very large B tier in Minnesota this summer with 341 players. It's the second biggest event in Minnesota history behind AM Worlds. And in the entire field, only three players did not have a current PDGA membership. So that's less than 1%. Just some interesting data for you. Remember that the new rule is going to be that B tiers, participation in a B tier requires a PDGA membership. You can't just get a temporary event membership. Um, 
And some people have been upset about that. But I think this goes to show you that basically the people who are playing in B tiers are already at the point in their like disc golf lifespan where they are committed enough to want to have a membership and have a rating and like they care. And I think it goes to show you that that's not going to be like an overly punitive metric and it will actually help to kind of separate between hey, this is for new people, beginners, everybody, C tiers, and then like, okay, you're moving up in the world. Now there's a B tier. This requires membership. I think that's a, an experience that is becoming a little bit more universal. Um, a lot of players, like you were mentioning, don't want to go to a tournament with 341 people as their starting tournament. When you pull up disc golf scene and look at your you know, intermediate or recreational divisions and you see 60 people, that could be a little bit overwhelming or intimidating. So I especially think as B tiers continue to grow, it's Nate's experience is going to be something that is not unique, especially with if the rule change does again, go into effect. Here's a question from Mike. I've got a week long pass for USDGC. I'll be commuting to the course an hour or so to attend and probably can't make it for every round. This is my first time attending an event in person. Any advice for attending? It's not really an etiquette question. I think I understand that, but uh, just specific to USDGC, any really good spots at Winthrop to set up to maximize the spectating? Uh, I can take this one. Obviously, Mike, you're going to want to be at the final round. You know this. I know this. Everybody knows this. So plan accordingly for that. If I was to recommend, I don't know how many rounds you think you can go to. I would say try to go to at least two. And I would try to go to one of the first two rounds. I think it's nice to go out in round one. I mean, who knows what, how crazy it's going to be this year because there's just been so much growth. But I think the first round's nice because there tends to be fewer people. Uh, you can get a little bit closer to the action. There's like a nice stillness early in the tournament. And, you know, you're going to get the best pickings at the pro shop. And you're going to feel the energy of the last major of the year. And that's really uh, a fun part of the experience. In terms of places to spectate, I really like, uh, I mean, certainly sitting near 17 and being able to watch the tee shots on 18 and watch people approaching on 17, that's that's a really fun stretch of the course for, for obvious reasons. You know, I think 18 is really fun to watch. I mean, just posting up on the patio outside the pro shop and watching people drive onto the fairway on 18 and then approach the green, you could do worse than that. Um, I don't know if there's any like perfect corners the, the 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 back half of the course has long long holes which kind of extend and there's not really a good place to sit and watch a bunch of it so i mean personally i actually think walking the course and just kind of trying to stay along with the with the card that you want to watch whether that's the lead card or just your favorite player is a pretty good way to experience it it's not it's not like a grueling course it's very pretty um and there are spots where you can kind of like get ahead. Like if you go towards the green on five, which is the big par five along the water, and then you'll be able to see people coming into the green on five. 
you'll be able to see hole six and hole seven from there, um, which I think six is the sand green, and then seven is the the clown mouth one. Pretty sure that's a nice little stretch to sit and watch. And uh, I think the big thing about USDGC is like just you know bring an umbrella in case it either rains or is very hot and sunny, which it can be, and take advantage of the sort of like amenities that are there, right? It's a very professionally run event. You have the really nice pro shop. You have food. Um, it's not just like you're walking around in the park. So I think taking advantage of those opportunities is, is part of the enjoyment of that tournament. There you go. There's your comprehensive guide to how to spectate USDGC. I, being on the other side of the country, have not had the opportunity to attend. Uh, so I can add no value to that conversation. Well, why don't you take this last one and then we'll, uh, we'll move on. All right. Our last email comes from Tim. Tim says that we missed one of the best pound-for-pound throwers. Uh, he brings up Manabu Kajiyama, saying that uh, Manabu is debatably smaller than Paige and bombs even further. So it looks like we did miss somebody, Charlie. Uh, I, I really would be interested to get some numbers on this, to really to really get an answer and see. I, I think it's a fascinating question. Yeah, like we could do... So in, in weightlifting... Um there's a thing called the Wilkes score and it allows you to compare the strength of power lifters based on their body weight because you know, a 400 pound dude, how do you compare his strength to a 150 pound female? Like obviously from an absolute perspective, the 400 pound guy is almost certainly going to be stronger, but like, your body weight has a lot to do with your ability to lift weight. So they have this Wilk score, which allows you to sort of make this cross comparison. You could do something similar in disc golf, I suppose, right? You look at how some, far somebody throws compared to their body weight, compared to the like length of their limbs. We, we could take a, take a bunch of like things into consideration and create a score. Um, yeah, like Manabu is, is a great option. I mean, you know, how much does weight really matter when it comes to throwing? It doesn't seem like that much. It seems to me that the the longest throwers seem to have great levers. It's not really about their size as much as it is their, uh, you know, I mean, obviously, I think being taller means you're going to have longer arms and that you can therefore maybe get a little bit more uh, mechanical advantage with your throws. But some of the best and longest throwers on tour right now are not the, the biggest, tallest, lankiest people i do think that is the sort of ideal body type right the eagles the calvins uh but then you got garrett girthy who's like not really <laughs> he's not really like a long levered guy um and he's probably the farthest thrower on tour so it's an interesting idea and uh i like the uh the input there so that will bring us to the end of our mailbag segment here uh we are going to now go inside the circle so josh Take it away. We've got a lot of news this week, Charlie. The first one, Idio Shoes has reached their Kickstarter goal. Kickstarter goal, $119,000, a thousand pair of shoes. They have hit that goal. And I know there's a Nate Sexton limited edition that you can get if you sign up. I think there's a little bit of time left. Um, so Idio, it seems like a lot of people are interested in getting what Idio calls the, you know, the perfect disc golf shoe. 
$266,938 pledged of people buying these shoes. Impressive stuff. Um, you know, I think uh, we talked about it on the show a, a couple months ago. You know, footwear as a potential place for innovation in disc golf. And here we are. <laughs> Somebody was like, hey, you know, taking trail running shoes or taking, you know, waterproof hiking shoes and making them work for disc golf. It's fine, but it's not ideal because they're not built for the kind of motion, particularly the twisting motion that tends to wear out these shoes. So I I, I want to be convinced. I want to hear how people feel about these shoes in six months uh, before I decide that I want to drop 120 bucks or whatever they cost um, to, to, to buy something like this. And because that's going to be the big thing. For me, it's about like the longevity of the shoes. So uh, I think it's very cool. Congratulations to them for for getting uh, as many shoes pre-sold as they have. And, and now they've got a company, you know, that's that's quite a bit of money to have uh, coming in 266 grand. Well, I, I think, like you said, if these if these shoes really meet the hype, they are going to have a very successful future in the oh, sport yeah. moving forward. Oh, yeah. So hope I, I hope the product's as good as they say. And and if they are, if they last, I, I'll definitely get some in. But like you said, I like to, I want to see improved as well. Second inside the circle, Charlie, I know this is a subject very near and dear to your heart. The PDGA, as well as the WFDF, have renewed their partnership. Uh, and in the PDGA press release, they even mentioned about how this may give them access to the international games or Olympic sports, something that we talked about on the show a few weeks ago. So, Charlie, what do you want to say about this? I know this has to be something that, that you're keeping an eye on coming from the ultimate world. Well, I wrote an article about this in December. Um, and back in 2016, uh, the PDGA and WIFDIF, who had been partnered, split up. The PDGA board voted unanimously to leave WIFDIF. Um, and so just really quick, for those who don't know what's going on, the World Flying Disc Federation is the internationally recognized governing body of flying disc sports. That means disc golf, that means ultimate, freestyle, you name it. Now, the PDGA sort of recognizes itself as the home for international disc golf. And, you know, you can read the article if you want to get the context kind of behind the scenes here. But basically, and I think fairly so, you know, the PDGA was frustrated that they didn't feel like WIFDIF was doing enough to support the growth of disc golf. Historically, WIFDIF has been very ultimate Frisbee focused and not done a lot with disc golf. That has begun to change. They now have a disc golf chair and committee. Uh, they talk a lot with Dan Stork Roddick. Um, there's been conversation back and forth between the PDGA. They now run a world team disc golf championship. Um, and the reason this stuff matters, it's like, who cares, right? People are like, whatever, this is boring uh, administrative nonsense. The reason this matters is because in the international sports world, the, you know, the Olympic, the International Olympic Committee and the other big governing bodies of international sport want to work with a single entity that covers all of the disciplines inside of a single sport. So the sport is considered flying disc 
And disc golf would be a discipline within that. The same way that in, uh, you know, that in the Olympics, you have athletics, which includes the 100-meter dash, one of the disciplines, 200-meter dash, uh, long jump, you know, the weird one where they jump over stuff into water. What's that one called? Um, Isn't it steeplechase? Steeplechase. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, all of those are disciplines within this broad umbrella of athletics. So the broad umbrella is flying disc. And so if disc golf has any you know, desire to get into the Olympics in the future, to get into uh, the world games, which there's buzz about it getting back into the world games after like 20 years as a kind of like a featured sport that could become a long-term thing. And what that would mean is that, you know, people could come and represent their country and compete at the World Games, which is kind of the biggest sporting event internationally for non-Olympic sports. Ultimate com competes in the World Games. So this is a really good thing because one of the things that WIFDIF has that PDGA does not is deep membership with countries around the world. They just crossed 100 member countries. Now, a lot of these organizations are kind of ultimate Frisbee focused, uh, but the infrastructure of having a flying disc organization in, you know, I think they just added Ghana and um, a couple of countries in, in Asia, I think Kyrgyzstan, maybe um, you now have the ability to like bring disc golf in there as well, because WIFDF can say to them, hey, you're a flying disc organization. Uh, you know, you're doing ultimate. That's great. Have you tried to add a disc golf course to your country? Because the PDGA obviously has great representation in some countries, US, Canada, most of Nordic Europe, uh, Australia, Japan. But there are many, many countries where there's almost no presence of disc golf whatsoever, where there is actually a lot of presence for ultimate, like South America. Um, so th I think this is really, really beneficial long-term and I'm, I'm glad to see that they're kind of setting aside some of the past differences and recognizing that there's an opportunity here to kind of like share resources, right? The PDGA knows a lot more about disc golf than WIFDIF, but WIFDIF knows a lot more about international sports governance and rules and policies and, um, what people care about in that world than the PDGA. So it's obvious that they should work together and hopefully this time they can remain married. Well, you have to think part of it was during the pandemic, you know, ultimate, as you very well know, came to almost a complete stop due to just the, the risk that is involved in playing team sports. Whereas the PDGA now is probably just like sitting in a chair with their feet up with saying, we've been expecting you like thumbing through <laughs> their fat stacks of cash and WIFDIF is just coming into their office, you know, so I probably not quite like that, but you have to think that the increased membership and money from the PDGA, thanks to the pandemic has to be a, an important factor of consideration in how seriously WIFDIF is going to take this partnership moving forward. I would I would think so. I mean, I, I certainly think that there's recognition on the WIFDIF side that they need to do more uh, to support disc golf because, I mean, at this point, disc golf is bigger than ultimate in terms of like total participation. Um, and it may not even be that close at this point. So it's not enough to just be like, oh, we're going to do this one tournament and like be like, that's good enough. Um, 
I think that they really need to invest resources into disc golf. And I think we can recognize that like disc sports growth is good for everybody. Um, even if, you know, some people are going to find disc golf and then realize they love to play ultimate more and vice versa. So, or they love both like me. Um, and, and so I think that, you know, this is just like a really, a, a smart, necessary step and I'm glad to see it happening. Um, I, I don't necessarily know that it's quite like Wift. If it was like, oh God, we need to find no, money. Not, like they're not, trying not quite. to do disc golf stuff and they just need to continue to focus on it more and they have to work with the PDGA to make that happen. It's that simple. No, I, I completely agree. I don't I don't think it really was the case of, of Wift if thinking that, oh, now they can access fat stacks of cash the PDGA has. <laughs> but I, mean, I, I, I think factor. though that it, it may have accelerated the announcement of this partnership and that this may not have been quite as big of a deal or they may not have had the same partnership if it might have taken five years instead of this you know i think the acceleration of the pdga is an advantage for this partnership yep um final point inside the circle vinyl makala your finished champion champion is going to be coming to the united states coming with lucas rokinen to play the music city open carolina clash and then usdgc so, uh, you know, we talked about this earlier in the season. Winthrop has been offering USDGC spots to uh, players in Europe for certain tournaments. Vinyl Makala having earned that bid. Um, it's it's awesome to see some European golfers come. I hope more come, but I don't know if that's going to be the case. But at the very least, I think Vinyl Makala is an ep- excellent representative coming over from the European scene to come play. It's great to see Europeans get back over. Finished champ, 1030 rated, you know, uh, has won multiple Prodigy Pro Tour events over in Europe this year. Uh, I think uh, this is a positive sign, right? This is a signal that, you know, we're going to see some Europeans coming over. I don't think he'll be the only one to come over for that kind of, at least for USDGC end of the year stuff. Uh, But yeah, I'm excited. It's great. I'd love to see him really compete at USDGC. That'd be fun. So that does bring us to the end, the end of our Inside the Circle segment. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to preview the Delaware Disc Golf Challenge, and we've got a couple mulligans to get to. So stay with us. It's the Upshot. The Upshot is presented by Pound Disc Golf, makers of the best bags in the sport. Pound is a product-driven company committed to evolving with and elevating the sport of disc golf. As disc technology and emerging talent continue to redefine the boundaries of the sport, equipment and course design struggle to keep up. In order to develop products that will not only keep up with but also help redefine the sport, Pound utilizes the latest in backpack design technology. From 3D modeling to technical materials, Pound uses current technology to push product development beyond the current boundaries. Learn more at pounddiscgolf.com. Welcome back to The Upshot. So Friday through Sunday, we have a three-round national tour event. We're back on the NT after uh, Beaver State Fling was canceled. And it's the Delaware Disc Golf Challenge it's going to be three rounds on Iron Hill, one of the toughest courses on the tour, and uh, very, 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 very wooded. I mean, we're talking about thick woods the whole time, 
grinder of a course. And I wanted to, I wanted to read this to you. Uh, this is from the Facebook page for the Delaware Disc Golf Challenge. It's a uh, from the former TD, Jimmy, Jimmy McElvain, uh, talking about what spectators should prepare for. Iron Hill is not a country club, he writes. The walk is long and grueling, up and down elevation, over rocks and down trees. It is entirely in the woods and you will encounter briars, bees, and poison ivy. An NT round is not your Saturday morning round. It will last four and a half to five hours. The course is entirely in the woods. It will limit your ability to see the action. Uh, And let me once again bring up the bees. Yellow jackets, wasps, and all types of bees are very aggressive this time of year. We are about to put over 100 competitors out on the course for multiple days of practice and three days of competition. Add in hundreds of spectators and someone is going to get stung. Uh, So anyway... uh, you excited for the Delaware Disc Golf Challenge? It's a it's it's a challenge, Josh. You know, Charlie, what do you think about the fact that for for you know at the highest level of our events, you know, the elite series, whether it be national tour, pro tour, that we have to have like a spectator warning, like <laughs> spectate this at your own discretion. Uh, you know, making them sign a waiver. I don't know if they're actually making them sign a waiver, but could you imagine if you walked up to spectate a disc golf tournament and they're like, uh, "Here's your waiver. This says that nothing that the course does to you is our fault." Like, is that is that a tournament that this is, should this be is an the, elite series? This is the tough mutter of the disc golf tour. <laughs> You know, they, you got to you got to scramble underneath the electrical wires. Um, I, I, yeah, I, I don't know. Like, I think there's something kind of like crazy about this tournament. You know, I, not everybody shows up. I think some people just don't care for the course, um, don't care for like having to grind through the woods. It's got very long technical fairways. Uh, you're not going to see super hot scores. It plays. I don't think it's quite as hard as Northwood Black. Last in 2019, the last time the tournament was held, we saw MPO scores coming in around seven or eight uh, with multiple scores at that number. That's a little bit further under par than we saw at Northwood Black uh, earlier this year. But I think it's similar in that, like, it is very challenging, it's very demanding. There's the physicality of the course on top of the fact that you have tricky fairways and you know if you get a bad kick you're going to be in a bad spot so um yeah i mean i think it's just a fact that courses like this are not going to be optimal for spectating and that is even before we talk about the bees well and i just five hours like that that's how long he says (laughs) you need to be prepared for i feel bad for the guys who are going to be on live commentary like that's that's gonna be one heck of a day if rounds are gonna take that long. So I, it's gonna be interesting. Um, is there live coverage of this event? I believe there is. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No. I, I, and that's the plan. I've heard nothing. Nothing to suggest otherwise. It's gonna be on Disc Golf Network. Okay. I. I'm excited to watch it. I'm excited to watch. And and I have never. You know, back in 2019. That you know, Jomez was definitely the predominant way to watch disc golf. Uh, I think the live coverage has come a long ways since then, and so I personally did not watch the live coverage back in 2019. I'm I'm interested to watch. I don't believe at least, there was any. Was there not? Okay, okay. I don't think so there, there, I, and I wasn't sure if there even was. I'm interested to see the live coverage of this event, and 
I think it's going to add a lot to kind of an understanding of how the round plays in terms of the ebb and flow of momentum. And it's going to be an important part of the round, without a doubt, in my opinion. 10,585 feet for the MPO side, 9,050 feet for the FPO side. Pretty darn long considering how wooded the course is. Um, It's the top rated course in Delaware. And, you know, I think it's it's a kind of a feels like a throwback. A lot of this event, it's not it doesn't have the same kind of hype um, in terms of like spectating as some of the other events on tour. Um, I don't I don't think that you even have to pay to spectate. The same was true at Stafford Woods. Uh, you can just roll up and watch. And in that way, it's feels old school, right? It's an old school disc golf course, too. We're going to take brutally thick woods and put a course in there. Um Interesting note from the the UDISC profile. Uh, this is the the course is built at the site of a uh, Revolutionary War battle in the in 1777, and so it's got a little history to it. Um, some uh, some folks saying this is the first battle where the U.S. flag was flown. So interesting little note there. And I got some stats for you, Josh. I pulled up a tournament. So when you think of a tournament that's the polar opposite of the Delaware Disc Golf Challenge, what comes to mind? I don't know, something maybe like Preserve. Sure. Uh, maybe maybe not quite, quite not far not far enough, but yeah. I that's... mean, Preserve, Preserve is a great one. I, I used okay. Las Vegas Challenge. Okay, perfect. Yeah, yeah. I, so, I think that's definitely more polar opposite than my pick. So. I know. I mean, I think the Preserve is just e- equally valid, although they have, they've added a little bit more trees. They uh, did. That, that's why I was hesitant with that pick. But so LVC, right? It's wide open, lots of hyzers, um, not not much in the way of woods. So I just pulled some stats from this year's Las Vegas Challenge. The top marks in statistical categories, fairway hits 87%, parked percentage 26%, and circle two in regulation 86%. So, you know, very attackable course. You know, somebody was literally parked a quarter of the holes. That's amazing. Delaware Disc Golf Challenge 2019. Fairway hits 73%. Parked percentage 15%. Circle 2 in regulation 65%. A full 21% lower than LVC. And I think that shows you in a little, you know, just wrapped up with a bow where the challenge is here, right? It's hard to hit the fairways. It's hard to get onto the green. It's quite, you know, and those are again the top marks from the tournament in 2019. So, if you're getting a birdie look on, you know, if you were to get on three quarters of the holes, that would be an incredible achievement. <laughs> you would be beating the 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 best mark from 2019 by a full 10. Uh, whereas, you know, over at Las Vegas Challenge, like you almost want to be getting a look on every hole or just about. So. That's the difference between open golf and the closed down fairways of a of a course like Iron Hill. Spe- speaking of those stats, Charlie, I've got our over under for the week for you. Oh, okay. So circle two in regulation, you said top number was 65%, and that was Albert Tom, who is not there this year. Uh, he was the only one to break the 60% mark. Uh, the next highest was Ricky at 59, and I think there might have been one other at 59. Yeah, uh, Zach Melton. So a couple at 59, but... He was the only one to break the 60% mark. 
That 65 feels really, really good. Uh, he also was the top fairway hits as well and top in circle one in regulation. So, you know, his his driving was very clean, impeccable even uh, for this course. Over under 63% circle two in regulation for being the top circle two in regulation stat. Over under 63%. Okay, so do I get to include FPO? I'll give you the quick facts. Katrina Allen led the way in 2019 with a 61% circle two in regulation number. Everybody else was below 50%. Sure. Yeah, yeah. We can we can include and have there been a lot of changes to the FPO course? I I cannot say it's very difficult to figure out like what changes have been made. There's okay. not like a super clear caddy book that we can find. Um so I don't know. I assume there have been some changes made, but I don't know what exactly. Yeah, let, let's include them. 60, it's, hard, 60, it's hard to imagine them making it easier. <laughs> I, <laughs> yeah, I know. I agree. So let, let's do 63% uh, circle two in regulation, MPO, FPO, top number just in I'll, general. I'll take the over. You'll take the over. Okay. I'll take the over. Okay. And I'll give you 63.5% so you can get the 63 number. Okay. All right. That sounds good. Okay, there um, it is. I'm taking we go. over on 63.5% circle two in regulation for this weekend's tournament. One thing that I, every time this tournament comes around, I think of this moment. Sepapayu, eagling hole 17, and how long was this hole when they played it? I think it was the same. I think it was 850. It's currently 860. 860, 860. R5, and Seppo 3'd it. Watch if you're watching on YouTube and listen if you're at home. And Seppo. Oh my gosh, just annihilates this. <laughs> right down the middle. Yeah, that's the furthest drive I've ever seen on that. Oh, golly, that was so good. Oh my gosh. Oh. Are you <laughs> <laughs> that yeah. is inside the circle. That's bonkers. Seppo is putting for eagle. Yeah, this is something that I didn't think would happen. Oh my gosh, the crowd loves it. Each one of these spectators, I'm sure, has experience playing this course. They all know how difficult that is. That's not even difficult, that's unrealistic. Yeah, that's not that's not a real that's not a real sport. So there it is from the Jomez, courtesy of Jomez Pro. Give them a follow on YouTube. Obviously, you already do. I don't know why I'm even saying that. That's, uh, you know, German Yuli talking about uh, Seppo's incredible eagle on 17. And, you know, just like two unbelievable shots to get inside circle one, perfectly puring the gaps. I miss Seppo. I feel like he's kind of like fallen off the pace a little bit lately. That's a, a highlight moment not only in his career, but like for sure for this event forever. It was, I remember watching this just, and I I think I've watched it a couple of times. I really enjoy watching the Jomez of the Delaware Disc Golf Challenge. But I remember the first time I watched it, just so stressed that he was going to miss that putt because I wanted this so bad for him. I thought it was just so amazing that he'd gotten there. I wanted that eagle and was just so relieved when he hit that putt. I remember distinctly that feeling of him making it and it dropping in, just thinking like that, that is an exceptional score. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's crazy. 
It was the only eagle of the day. I think it surely was the only eagle of the tournament. I'm I'm double checking right now to make sure that that's true. It is true. Lots of lots of birdies, but only the one eagle. And he got the fist bumps from everybody. Uh, and he ended up finishing in fifth place that year behind Paul, Ricky, Eagle, and Paul Ulibarri. Some of those guys not in the field this year. No Macbeth, no McMahon. Ricky will be there, but uh, not a completely full tournament. A little bit more uh, well attended on the FPO side. Pierce will be there. Katrina Allen will be there. Sarah Hokum, uh, Heather Young, and uh, lots of the other touring names. So it it should be it should be a good tournament. It's not quite as well attended as most of the pro tour events, and I think won't be as well attended as as MVP Open coming up at Maple Hill and then the GMC. But uh, still, a lot of regional pros alongside many of the top pro players. Is it time to make our picks? I think so. All right, let's get to it. Um, why don't you take it away? Okay. Let's start on FPO. Starting in fifth place. My, my fifth place, I, I spent a lot of time trying to decide who I wanted to go with because, like you said, there's some regional talent. And while there is a better FPO field than the MPO side in terms of attendance, I, I was feeling like ooh, I wanted an outside pick for my top five. So I've got Natalie Ryan coming in fifth place. Uh, she played very well at the uh, Stafford Open, taking second place. Uh, so tied for second. Um, I, I think she can do well in the woods. So I've, I've got Natalie Ryan in fifth place. I've got Katrina Allen in fourth place. She just hasn't felt on the pace lately. Uh, I, I don't know why that would change this weekend. So I, I'm, I'm leaving her in fourth. Heather Young in third place. I think hitting her lines are something that she's good at. Hopefully she'll take advantage of it in this course. Sarah Hokum in second for a lot of obvious reasons. Also my winner for the East Coast stretch. So uh, got to keep picking Double her. Down, of Double down, man. <laughs> Uh, and then I have Paige Pierce winning it. I, I think she's playing really well. Uh, no reason to see that change right now. All right. So here's my picks. I'm going from the top down. I'm taking Katrina Allen to win this thing. I think okay. uh, this is this is the the refocus time. Um, and Katrina is so good at shaping shots uh, off the tee. And I think that's really the number one skill. You really have to be accurate off the tee. Uh, putting is is important, but not as important as getting clean to the green. Um, so, and she also won this event in 2019. Yeah, uh, on the true. MPO side, Matt Bell won it, and uh, in 2018 it was McBath and Sarah Hokum, and uh, that was its first year on the national tour. Before it was an NT 17, Andrew Fish and Hannah Leatherman were your winners. So, in second place, I have Sarah Hokum who's obviously won this tournament plays great here uh expect her to do well i'd be shocked if she didn't make the top five Paige pierce in third for me i have heather young in fourth i'm going to be really interested to see how she handles this iron hill course it's an interesting challenge um i don't necessarily know that this sets up great for her because it's not like a super like if you put out of your mind how much is that going to make a difference it, it might but you're going to have to put yourself in position to birdie first. Um, and then in fifth place, I have Alex Benson, who really impressed me at the Stafford Open. Uh, coming down from Vermont, you know, one of the top players in Vermont and, you know, making it down a little further south for the stretch of the East Coast side of the tour. 
and you know looked very impressive at uh, Stafford, and I think uh, can get in the top five here. Who you got for MPO, Charlie? I have. Uh, I'll start at the bottom. And number five, I have Matt Oram, who's been playing great. Obviously, just won the Stafford Open. This guy's anytime he shows up at a tournament, I feel like you can you have to consider him for the top five. And he was throwing amazing. I wouldn't be shocked if he won. Uh, I'm I'm fading him a little bit be- just because I think the field is really competitive. But he looked untouchable for most of the Stafford Open. In fourth place, I have Joel Freeman, who's played really well here in the past. And uh, I think this is his chance to to get back up into that top five and you know maybe chase that podiums finish. I have James Conrad in third place. I mean, this is this is James Conrad country, folks. <laughs> and I think he's gonna he's gonna have a nice end of the year here with this stretch of golf in the woods, and then of course USDGC. I have Chris Dickerson in second place. I swear I keep putting this guy in the top five, and I don't really feel like he's delivering for me. But I'm ready for Dickerson to catch fire here at the end of the season. So I'm 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 putting my chips in right now for for Dickerson. And in the first place spot, I've got Ricky Wysocki, who's got to be sick after not winning this tournament in 2019 when he had a huge lead going into the back nine and then like bogeyed down the stretch like four in a row and Matt Bell was just like all right I'm gonna keep birdieing bang 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 and that was enough for Matt Bell to get the win I mean really Ricky would have should have won this tournament in 2019 and I think he will win it this year I I also have Ricky to win it he's gotten second place two years in a row now um in I think he's still playing well I don't see any reason for him to not do well here again uh, but you know, maybe maybe he gets beat out again in the final stretch. I would not. That I I think any of our top five guys, if they were to win this tournament, I would not be shocked. Uh, I think any of them have the capacity, and in the woods especially, I think it's even more possible. So, Ricky's definitely I think my favorite. I think he's the the favorite in terms of you know he's the highest rated, but definitely not a lock for first. I have James Conrad in second. I agree. This is James Conrad country. Um, I I cannot wait to watch the 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 envy be flipping through some of those trees, uh, and then watch a piece of it just our souls break every time he hits a tree with it. It doesn't hit trees. I don't think you. Know that's oh, that's that. right. That's right. Sorry, it only hits chains. Um, after that, uh, I've got Matt Oram in third. He did me well at Stafford Open after I got to switch my picks. And I think I'm just going to keep rolling with him there. I've got Calvin Heimberg in fourth place. I, I was a little bit surprised, Charlie. You chose to leave Calvin off. I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing. I, I, there's just not a spot for everybody. There isn't. No, there isn't. Um, I'm making room for, for Calvin, though. Makes um, sense. Yeah. And then I have Matt Bell in fifth place. Uh, he play he plays well here and he, and this is interesting because i think matt bell shows us that that i mean a good putter really can make a difference i mean that's how he he really he he was clean he was do, he did well last year but it really was his putter that made the difference uh when you look at the stats as as expected i mean that's that's matt bell 93% from circle 1x 42% from circle 2 so and he was a full six percent behind Ricky and fairway hits, and in terms of tee to green, was uh, over over three strokes back. So uh, I think that 
a good putter can still make a difference. Um, and I think, I think Matt Bell's putter is good enough that he's one that can do it. So for sure, clearly it was the difference maker. Yeah. But he, he still got off the tee really well, right? He did. He did. Wiki by Saki and in strokes gained from tee to green. It's still really good. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it definitely is. So those are our picks. Uh, current scores. I'm at 45. Josh is at 40. Uh, we both got five points. I picked Missy Gannon to win the Stafford open. Josh picked Matt Orem. I'm up six to five in the over under contest. And soon, maybe next week, we need to pick stakes for what happens to the loser <laughs> or the winner for our once we get to the end of the season. It's close enough right now that I feel like it's fair to to, like to make picks set some stuff. It's not like somebody's already bl- uh, taken the lead uh, overwhelmingly. So, <laughs> so put it in your mind. If you have f- ideas, folks, upshot at ultyworld.com. We are listening. All right, let's get to mulligans. This again is our new segment where we correct dumb things we said. So here's a couple things that we need to take a mulligan on. Um, I said that the the Disc Golf Pro Tour champions last year got $25,000 in uh, prize money. False. They got $20,000 in prize money. I don't really think it changes any of the substance of what we were talking about in terms of it's going to be a bigger number this year, but that was wrong. Um, I also, I think we both did this, Josh. I, I think so too. We were like talking about the match play championships and discussing that there were going to be 16 spots in both mpo and fpo false there are eight spots in fpo and 16 in mpo and uh so you know looking down at what was happening at the 14 15 16 17 spots in fpo was not the right thing to be doing the invitations are out we await the final pairings once invitations are accepted i think we should know those next week so looking forward to talking about the match play championships and uh, starting to speculate on who's you know, who's the most likely underdog to get a win and uh, looking forward to seeing that steel club course as well. I've heard good things. And finally, wow, big L for me on this one. <laughs> Josh, you said that we were going to we were talking a little bit about the potential return of Vibram discs. And you said that uh, Vibram discs were going to come back. And I was like, what are you saying? It's Vibram. <laughs> what are you talking about? Well, we got an email and it's also Vibram because it's an Italian company, which like, duh, I knew this. And so Vibram (laughs) is a totally acceptable pronunciation. And Vibram is also sort of the commonly used American pronunciation. But technically, Mm -hmm. Josh, you were more right than I. (laughs) You were more right than I. So I apologize to you for suggesting that you didn't know what you were saying. And uh, really, I was the one that knew nothing. Uh, that's okay, Charlie. I forgive you. So you can send us mistakes. We're making a new email address. Thank you to, uh, I, I think it was, I, I don't want to get this wrong and have to re- correct myself in the mulligan segment next time. <laughs> Dave. Thank you, Dave, for the idea. We have a mulligans at ultiworld.com email address. So you can always email us upshot at ultiworld.com anytime with any any topic. If you have specific corrections that you want to make, mulligans at ultiworld.com and we will make sure to get those things into our mulligan segment all right that's going to do it for this week's show join us for our subscriber bonus segment where we look ahead and make our two early picks for usdgc 
and start to preview this year's tournament, which is coming up. And we'll make picks for uh, Throw Pink Women's Disc Golf Championships as well. That's a mouthful, man. I really hope they change that because I don't really want to say TPWDGC, um, but it is what it is. So join us there, discgolf.ultyworld.com slash subscribe, less than $4 a month, and you can get all of our bonus segments along with a whole lot more. For Josh Mansfield, I'm Charlie Eisenhood saying so long, and we'll talk to you next week right here on The Upshot.